turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter number 14. And uh, it is good to be back in the Lord's house and had a great week thus far. And looking forward to the rest of the week leading into the weekend. Got a busy weekend upcoming this coming Saturday. And ask you that you would please pray uh, for the weekend with uh, Easter Egg Hunt. And everything goes well, and uh, they're calling for a little bit of rain. And depending on which radar you look at and the time stamp, um, we're just praying that we have a great window of opportunity uh, this coming Saturday to minister to some people in our community um, and just shine Christ to, to our neighbors around us. So hope that you'll pray for that. Looking forward to this coming Saturday. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel, when you look through several of the chapters that we've been through, uh, it's been littered with failures. If you think about Eli and his sons, and then you think about Samuel and his sons, and then you see Saul and his inability to trust in the Lord, when we get to chapter number 14, we see a bright spot. Here is a man who has all of the gift and ability of a great leader. Uh, we see somebody who, man, he would be an awesome King, He places his confidence wholly in the Lord. He trusts in him. He gets people on board with him as far as following the Lord and being sensitive to his leading. If only he didn't have a dad like Saul. If only he didn't have an obstacle for his father. And this guy was the king that they always needed. They could have ever wanted in Jonathan, this young man. And his legacy would be all about the faithfulness to his God, and his faithfulness to his friend. That would be Jonathan's legacy. He would be known as the friend of David and someone who followed the Lord completely. But what about the relationship with Saul? Uh, we see in this one chapter alone, all 52 verses are littered with tension, uh, family tension, family rivalry between Saul and Jonathan to the point at the end of the chapter where Saul is ready to kill Jonathan. I mean, literally, his tells everybody in attendance that Jonathan is getting ready to die. And it shows me that there are times in our lives when we might be faced with a choice. I can be loyal to my God or I can be loyal to other people. I might have to choose. Now, the flip side of that is if I'm loyal to God, I will be loyal to others. Because my relationship with Him will drive me to have a right relationship with others. But the flip side of that is if my relationship with others isn't right, then my relationship with him won't be right. So there is a parallel. And Remember Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 31, he said, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So we see that there is an intense parallel here. If God is on our side, who can stand against us? Uh, but we see the behavior in uh, point number one. If you're writing notes, number one is the behavior. And we see that in the first 12 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Let's look at a couple verses here for context. Now it came to pass at, upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he told not his father. There's first indicator, number one, that there's a problem. All right, Verse number two. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. Now remember, we, at the end of chapter 13, we found out that he started with 2,000 men at the beginning of chapter 13. And they got afraid. They scattered on Saul, which led to him sinning against God and losing the kingdom, finding out that he was going to lose the kingdom. 
He's with those same 600 men. In verse number 3, we see some spiritual emphasis. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Remember the name Ichabod, several chapters back. The son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wherein ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. Get the picture. Jonathan and his armor bearer say, hey, let's sneak down to the enemy's camp. We can see them down there. Let's sneak down to the enemy's camp and let's see what's going on. It just seems harmless. But Jonathan, remember, was the initiator of the last battle that they were in. Just one chapter before, in chapter number 13 and verse number 3, it says that Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. This had been a pattern. Jonathan was an adventurous person. Hey, if at first you don't take up knitting or needlework or Facebook, let's just go kill some people. I mean, that was kind of Jonathan's outlook on life. Let's just go find whatever piece of trouble that we can get in and let's see if God is in it. I mean, that's, that was his really outlook in chapter 14. But it says that they went down in verse number 6. Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, come. Let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few. You think about Jonathan was always involved in a battle. Sometimes the battles we have really aren't even worth fighting. Sometimes they're not worth facing. Sometimes it's, ah, I'm not even going to fool with that. It's not worth my time. But sometimes the battles are in your own backyard. And that's where we see Jonathan and this armor bearer. They could see the enemy. They were in a position where we could, they could see them. And we know that because later on in the chapter, Saul's lookouts can see Jonathan and his armor bearer and the Philistines. So we know that this is within eyesight of what's going on, where they are camped. But sometimes our battles happen when we least expect them. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 23 in verse number 11, there is a guy named Shema, not Shamu, that's the whale, but Shema uh, here in 2 Samuel 23, verse 11. It says, After him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite, and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. Same people group, Philistines, same enemy, same people fighting against the Philistines and the Israelites, and Shema is an Israelite. He's an Israelite. He's a warrior. Verse number 12, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. This is a ground full of lentils, beans. It's just a bean field. It didn't really make much difference. It's just a simple bean field. But it became a battlefield when the enemy came into the battlefield. And we might not think that our job is a battlefield, but if the enemy's there, it's a battlefield. We might not think that our home is any more than just a bean field, but if the enemy is attacking our homes, it becomes a battlefield. And why is that important to us? Because it changes how you look at your bean field. Because if it's just a bean field, it has to be tended. But if it's a battlefield, it has to be defended. If it's a bean field, it just has to be tended. But if it's a battlefield, it has to be defended. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is my bean field becoming a battlefield? The, the job that I have, is it just a bean field or is the enemy attacking my job? Is my home just a bean field or is Satan attacking my home? Because if we have a bean field, we can just tend to it. Every now and then, put some water on it, feed it, miracle grow, we'll be fine. 
But if the enemy is coming against it, it takes a different outlook. I have to look at that situation differently. If Satan is attacking my home, I have to put my armor on and make sure that it stays on all the time. I have to make sure that I'm armored up and I'm ready for battle every single day. I'm not going out with just my gloves on and my you know, gardening hoe and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to tend to my little garden. No, I'm going to grab my sword and I'm going to grab my shield and my armor and I'm going to be ready for battle. It all comes down to how you look at your bean field. What's interesting is that he didn't tell his father in verse number one. Why wouldn't Saul want to know? Maybe he would be concerned about his son. Maybe he would say, hey, stop. This is not wise because he's just a young guy. But for some reason, Jonathan says, I'm not going to tell Saul. I don't want him to know. And Jonathan takes action here. But the contrast is Saul. Jonathan goes into battle unafraid. But what is Saul doing? Verse 2. Saul tarried in the utmost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Now, let's, let's go back to our beanfield battlefield. The enemy is in their backyard. And Saul is taking a nap. Uh, literally, Saul is sitting under a tree like he has no cares in the world. He is the king over an army that God has appointed. And he is acting like he doesn't have any problems. There's no battle. Yet right down the mountain, there is the enemy encamping close enough to be seen. He's sitting under a tree. You've got one guy who's not afraid of battle in Jonathan. And you've got another guy who doesn't want to be anywhere near it. And we see that even two chapters, three chapters later in chapter 17. Remember when Goliath is on the other side of the valley? Who is in his tent with all of the other Israelites? Saul. Didn't want to be anywhere near. He was the biggest guy on the battlefield. And yet he didn't want to go out and fight against Goliath. This is a cowardly man. And we see Jonathan, a brave warrior. We see in verse number 6, he's creeping closer and closer. He said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. He starts talking strategy. Hey, what are we going to do? What are we going to see? How are we going to approach this? And this was just going to be a scout mission when they left in verse number 1. But when they get down to verse number 7 and 8, they start talking about what ifs. What will happen if? This servant really speaks up in verse number 8 or verse 7 and says, The armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. It reminds me of Nathan, the prophet. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass as David, the same David, this is the David, King David. David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. Challenging him. Hey, if God's laid that on your heart, David, do it. Don't hold back. And we all need friends in our lives who will say, if God's laid down on your heart, go. If God has gifted you with that, do it. If God has laid that on your heart, be it. Are you a friend that will challenge someone else? This past Sunday was service Sunday at Crossroads. We handed out cards to the entire church body. 
asked people to pray about during the invitation where they could serve. Where are you serving? Had people turn in their cards. We had 43 cards come in on Sunday. It was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, they, they turned in their cards. But what is our response to that? Oh, well, we'll see. And we'll see if they, if they carry out their commitment. And we'll see. Man, we're going to be excited instead. We're going to challenge those people. Hey, step it up a notch. It's encouraging when people want to serve and they commit to serve. And when we see new faces, we should challenge them. Hey, it's good to see you serving. Let's do it. Uh, we, this past uh, uh, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I came down uh, through the lobby and there was somebody new at the table uh, and greeting people in first impressions ministry, greeting as people are coming by. And uh, this lady greeting folks and first time they are serving. And I caught her husband in this room and he was in the uh, waiting for the service to begin. And I said, hey man, it's good to see your wife out there serving. He said, she's the best looking first impressions person we have. And uh, I said, well, that's your opinion. But oh, we just keep on. Uh, but encouraging, encouraging one another. When we see somebody serving for the first time, or maybe they're just wading into the shallow end of the pool of service, what is our response? Do we walk by and be like, eh, another first impressions person, eh, another new school, uh, Sunday school teacher, uh, another new choir person? Man, we should be excited and challenge one another and encourage one another. Man, get back in it. And when we see somebody who hasn't been serving in a while, who used to serve, we ought to, hey, man, I haven't seen you in that position in a while. I haven't seen you there for a while. Uh, man, why not get in? We're praying for you. Let's, let's get back in encouraging one another. Jonathan told his servant how they would know if God wanted them to go to the battle. Verse number 9, if they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and won't go up to them. Jonathan's real simple. One of two options is going to happen. We're going to say, hey, we're up here. Going to get you, you know. And whatever their response was would determine their response. If they say, we're going to come up and kill you, we're not going anywhere. But if they say, come down here and fight us, we're going. We're going. He gauged that response. And they weren't hindered by fear. They could have said, oh man, I, I don't want to go down there. Look how many, there's just two of us. They could have said, you know, we'll just wait here. I mean, sure, dad will see us down here. and uh, We'll holler back and, uh, you know, get some reinforcements. They could have done that, but instead they went forward by faith, trusting uh, it's ironic. Uh, we're three years, three years today from our second COVID service. Three years today. All right. I watched some of our service from three years ago on Facebook today, uh, staring, standing right here, looking at the video camera. Uh, you know, it's just interesting. Three years ago, coming through that, and our theme in 2020 was so fitting. And several people have said, never again, Pastor. Let's not, let's not make that our theme ever again. By faith, by faith, <laughs> Hebrews 10, 38, by faith. Uh, but when we think about, are we moving forward by faith? Are we taking steps, advancing? And how's our behavior? When we're in that unfamiliar territory, how do we respond? We see not only the behavior, number two, we see the battle. In verse 13 through 23, we see the battle that takes place. A garrison, about 20 soldiers, uh, they, Jonathan and his, soldier, and his uh, servant, Hear back from the word. Hear the word from the Philistines. Hey, come down here. And we'll show you something. We'll show you how warriors really fight. So what do they do? Verse 13. 
And Jonathan climbed upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him. They were climbing through these rocky terrain, this rocky terrain, trying to get to these soldiers. And what happens? And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. Both involved. Jonathan would knock somebody down, and his armor bearer would stick him. You know, that was just that was how it worked. That they would make sure that he stayed down. I'm going to knock him down. You make sure he doesn't get back up. That's how they did. But meanwhile, while they're on the ridge, they're being watched. Look at verse number 15. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, among the people, the garrison, the spoilers. They also trembled. The earthquake. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. These lookouts are starting to see this army dissipate. Something is happening. Something's going on. Uh, He begins to share that. And while he's waiting, while they're trying to figure out what's going to go on, what happens? Saul says in verse number 17, hey, the people are going. Let's do something about it. What is Saul's response? Verse 18, and Saul said unto Ahiah, bring hither the ark of God. Now remember, the ark of God represented the presence of God. This is Saul. This is an awesome picture. Saul is saying, hey, let's get God involved. Let's make sure before we move that God is in this thing. Before we go anywhere, let's get with God. Great advice. Great advice. But this didn't last long. In verse number 18, bring hither the ark of God. Verse 19, it came to pass while Saul talked in the priest, while they're waiting on the ark to be transported to where they are, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. He said, hey, you're holding on the ark. You're getting ready to bring the ark. Let's hold off on that order. Let's not bring God along. Now let's not worry about bringing the ark, Ahiah. We don't need the ark, Ahiah. This is a little thing, Ahiah. We can handle this on our own. Remember in the book of Joshua, that little town, Ai, right after Jericho. Man, the children of Israel marched around the city walls seven times around on that last day. And then they blew the trumpets and shouted and the walls fell down flat. The, the ground literally swallows them up. And they go in, they win against the undefeated Jericho. The, that city that nobody could beat. And all of a sudden they go in and they conquer everything. God defeats them. What do they do? What's their response? There's a little city outside of Jericho and they say, we can go up and we don't even need to bother God. We don't even need, we don't even have to take our entire army. We can do this on our own. And what happened? The men of Ai defeated the Israelites. This superpower gets defeated. It's like the NCAA tournament when that number one seed gets knocked out by that 16 seed. I'm just saying, uh, first time it ever happened. There was a, a local team that that happened to. Uh, but uh, I can't say anything. My team didn't make it this year, but uh, at least it didn't happen to them. So you think about this is an impossible situation where you would think that you would want God involved. And Saul says, we don't need him. They went to the battle without God. Remember the words of Job in Job 23 verse 12. When he said, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job said, man, I cannot fathom being without the word of God. 
He said, more than my necessary food, more than I eat, I've got to have God's word. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And then he said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Both Job and Paul knew the highs and lows. They knew how to experience blessing and they knew how to experience defeat. But what was their common denominator? They both understood and had experienced the presence of God. They both knew how important it was. So how do we look at our surroundings? Do we look at our circumstances and say, man, I need God. I need Him. The old song, I need Thee every hour, O precious Lord. Do we see Him as someone that we need every day or just when things get bad enough? When things get out of my control where I can't do it anymore, then I'll ask God for help. That's how we live our lives. When I know that I can't do it on my own, then I'll ask God. Because I don't want to do what he can do. He's supposed to be our first call, not our last call. He's supposed to be the first source. But as they're coming towards the battle, they get help from an unlikely group. Verse 21 Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also, hard, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. Remember all those guys, those 1,400 men who were hiding? They came out of the caves and said, Hey! What are y'all doing? We're going to fight. We're coming too. These guys all of a sudden were emboldened and it comes back to the acts of two guys. Two guys. You know, you think about our life today. Excuse me, 1,400 men were afraid just like they were three chapters later when David went out and defeated Goliath. And when David defeated Goliath, what happened? They were emboldened. And they ran after the Philistines. And the Lord did something great that day. But think about the fact, whether it's one or two, somebody has to rise to the challenge. Somebody has to say, our God is bigger. Somebody has to get up and say, our God can do that. Somebody has to be the one that says, it doesn't matter what everybody else says, what everybody else is doing, we are going to trust God. We are going to go forward for Him. It doesn't matter what the world says, we are going to be the people of God. We're going to be the church. And if He is our God and He has not changed, then He is just as powerful as this book says He is. He can do all things just like this book says He can. And if he was trustworthy then, he's trustworthy today. If he can be trusted then, he can be trusted in my life and in your life. Hey, three years ago, we had no idea what was happening next. Now, let's be honest. Three years ago, we didn't know what was going to happen in the world. We didn't know if we were all going to get sick and die. We didn't know, should we wear a mask, should we not wear a mask? We didn't know, should I get a shot, shouldn't I get a shot? We didn't know what was happening next. But God was faithful. And God led us through. 
And he is not getting ready to stop now. He is still going to be faithful. He's still going to be good. Because that's who he is. And that's what he does. We look at this group. They suddenly became courageous because of the acts of one or two people. So tonight, will you be that one? Will you be that person who will stand up and say, my God can? I'm not going to listen to those that say, well, that was in the past. Well, God was faithful in the past, and he's going to be faithful in the future. Just like he was in the past. He's still going to be good. Uh, John MacArthur said, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. As somebody said, true courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to proceed in spite of it. Not the absence of fear, but the willingness to proceed in spite of it. We also get to see who did the work that day. Verse number 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. <laughs> if you look in verse number 20, every man's sword was against his fellow. You know what it means? That the Philistines started killing each other. The Israelites didn't even have to fight. Because the Philistines were doing so good of a job killing each other that the Israelites didn't have to do anything. Remember, they didn't have weapons. Remember that? The end of chapter number 13. The only two people in the army that had swords were Jonathan and Saul. What were they expecting to do when they ran up to these Philistines? God not only saved them, God used their inability that they couldn't fight. They had no weapon. They had no way to fight. And God said, I got this. I got this. You know, sometimes in our life, we just need to lean back and say, God's got this. I don't have a weapon. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. To the pulling down of strongholds. We're fighting a battle that we're seriously unmatched for. We're not ready. We're not prepared. The, the, the spiritual forces, forces that are around us, we don't know how to fight, but God does. And we need to step back and say, God's got it. He's in control. We see the boldness here in verse 24. The men of Israel were distressed that day. I would imagine Saul becomes emboldened here and we see the intention of his heart. Verse 24, he says, Cursed be the man that eateth any food that eat until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. Saul didn't care about these guys. Saul cared about one thing, revenge. How can I make a name for myself? He was made a fool by Samuel, previous chapter. Uh, couldn't claim the victory in verse number 20, 23 that the Lord gave. So how does he save face? What's he do? He tells the guys, hey, nobody's going to eat until I've got revenge. Look at the pride of Saul. The pride filled his heart. Why? Because when people become prideful, they do things that they might not otherwise do. Pride makes people unpredictable. Remember, this is the guy who was the anointed one. The one who was supposed to be the example Remember Eliab, David's brother, in 1 Samuel 17? Remember when David shows up for battle and he hears about Goliath 
and he starts saying all these things. Hey, we can do it. Uh, God's been faithful. He's been good. What does Eliab do? The oldest brother of David. Verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And why hast thou, with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride. Really? David wasn't proud. David was humble. He was a meek leader. His entire life showed that. Who was the proud person? The person who got passed over to be the next king. Eliab. This is Eliab's problem, not David's problem. But when we're prideful, we point out the failures of others, but won't point them out in our own life. When we're prideful, we point out the failures of other people, but won't address them in our life. He said, I know thy pride, the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Pride. Remember the older brother? Remember the prodigal son comes home? And the older brother won't even go into the house to rejoice with the younger brother who'd come back home? Luke 15, 29, and he answered, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, thy son was come, not your, my brother, thy son, no associate, I don't want to be associated with him. Pride consumes from the inside out. You know, it changes who we are, makes us something we can't stand seeing in other people. I still love me, but I don't like that. Kent Hughes said, Pride is the sin we cannot see in ourselves and yet so detest in others. Pride is the sin we cannot see in ourselves and yet so detest in others. Hey, did you know what they did? That's gossip. That's, that's a sin. Yeah, but, but did you know what they did? That's gossip. You know, it's... it's Seeing the toothpick that's in somebody's eye and it's neglecting to address the two-by-four that you have stuck in your own. That's what we're talking about. That was Saul's problem. But the problem was when he makes this decree, not everybody was there. Just real quickly, Jonathan didn't hear it. Jonathan comes by, sees honey on the ground. And what's he do? Man, I'm hungry. Reaches down, gets his honey, eats. His eyes were enlightened. Man, he's, he's replenished. And everybody's like, uh-oh, Jonathan's going to die. And so what happened? Jonathan blames his dad. Jonathan was a smart guy. Look at verse number 29. Then said Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. Hey, my dad is the reason we're in this mess. My dad is the problem, not me. My dad, we could have seen an even bigger battle, an even bigger victory, if my dad hadn't tried to inflict punishment. We see the building in verse 31 through 37. All this comes back to Saul. The men are famished. When they finally win the battle, they fall on the spoils. They start eating. They start cooking this food as quick as they can get it. They start eating it. They break Levitical law. Levitical law said that they had to kill an animal drain the blood, cook the meat. No blood could be found. Thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. All right? Um, if, you're, if you don't have pink in your meat, you might as well just get a hamburger. And, uh, but 
Thank God for grace, Brother, Brother Munson. Thank God for grace. Uh, but uh, Saul, 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 Saul. Say that in three times. Saul, Saul, this is an act against God. And what's he try to do? Saul tries to be spiritual. Look at verse number 37. Uh, excuse me, verse number 35. And Saul built an altar under the Lord. This is the only time that Saul builds an altar in his entire life that we see recorded. And what happens? Verse 37. And Saul asked, asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them in the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. Big surprise. Saul tries to talk to God and God says, I'm not listening. Hear you knocking, but you can't come in. You know, it's, it's literally, I'm not going to speak. Why? Because Saul did not address the problem. The problem wasn't Jonathan. The problem wasn't the men. The problem was Saul. And Saul refused to address the need. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's still a biblical truth. We see the backing in verse 38 through 46. It says, he asked the priest to draw the people together. Who the problem is, they draw lots. Customary, Saul throws Jonathan to the wolves, literally. And says, Jonathan, tell me what you did. Jonathan tells him that he ate when he wasn't supposed to. He didn't know. And Saul speaks up and says, hey, God is my witness. Jonathan, you're getting ready to die. And what happens? Look at verse number 45. Remember those guys who were afraid of Saul at the beginning of the chapter? All of a sudden, they're emboldened. Verse 45, it says, And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. Saul, you're not going to touch him. We're not going to let you. There were 600 of them, remember. There was only one of Saul. Hey, we're not going to, this is not going to be the way today ends. Might not be the way it started, but this is not going to be the way that it ends. For he hath wrought with God this day. Hey, Saul, he was the agent that God used to win the victory. And we are not going to punish him for being used by God. They stood up. His behavior was blessed by God in verse number 6. He said that the Lord will work for us. It's very possible to see the Lord work in some while he refuses to work in others. Even a father and a son. God can work in one and refuse to work in the other. Which group would you and I fall into? Would you fall into that group that God can bless or the one that God can't touch? And then lastly in verse 47 through 52 we see the burden. The end of Saul's life and legacy would be found in verse 52. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Saul's life was categorized by battles. Everywhere Saul turned, he lived the rest of his life with a burden of what he had done. He never got right. He never addressed his sin. He never got his pride under control. None of it. And it was a burden for the rest of his life. It sounds like Proverbs 14, 12, where it says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. His family's listed, his children are listed, but Saul's testimony was that he was a prideful man and God could not and would not use him. He'd remove him in due time, 
But could God look down at your and my life and use us exactly the way we are right now? Or would there need to be some fixing done first? Would there need to be a time of confession and repentance and forgiveness take place before God can use us? That's what Saul needed, but he never acted on it. And we can sit all we want and know exactly what we need, know exactly what the problem is. But until we address our problem, until we address sin and call it what it is, God cannot use us. God cannot use our lives. As much as we might try, God wants to use us. And God will if we will ask Him to forgive us. If we will seek Him and we will follow Him. Would it be more beneficial for God to remove you and use somebody else? Or could God use you in your life? Father, thank you so much for your word. and Lord, I ask that you would please bless and Lord, help us to apply your truths to our lives. Lord, help us to be people that you can use. Help us to be people who are humble enough to admit when we are the problem. Lord, help us not to be arrogant and proud like Saul, but Lord, help us instead to follow you and help us to be sensitive to your conviction and your spirit when you show us where we're wrong. Lord, help us to make things right for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're getting ready to go to our prayer time. And let me just give you a couple things that you need to know.